before you open your Bibles, let me just explain what it is we're going to be doing today. We are beginning a new series this, this uh, spring, uh, winter and spring, uh, studying through the book of Second Samuel. One of the Old Testament books that deals with the story of King David. And uh, it's an epic story, one that's a, a real kind of forerunner for modern tragedies. Actually, you've been struck as we look at the big story of King David, which we'll do in a minute, how close it is to the stories of tragedy we see in the modern world of Hamlet and Macbeth in Shakespeare. Of the kind of great archetypes, the great, uh, the great stories we tell ourselves, a lot of them find their, some of their earliest uh, markers in the story of King David. It's an epic uh, which is written on a grand scale. It's, I'm actually really looking forward to preaching through it. It's so different and so far removed from uh, the stories we normally think about. Uh, that it's more like uh, watching a superhero movie than it is reading the Bible. It's a really big story. And I, I'm going to introduce the book today by showing a video uh, that traces the big story of Second Samuel in, uh, in uh, a kind of macro view. It's taking a bird's eye view of 1 Samuel so we can see where it goes. A bit like uh, when you're taking a journey and if you go on Google Maps at the beginning of the journey and you enter in, I want my destination... So I'm going to uh, Paris or Rome or Edinburgh and I've put it in and it shows me the big picture of how I'm going to get there. I think I'm going to travel via Calais and Dover. I'm going to go through Newcastle and you can see how the journey is going to pan out. And then when you're driving, you have a very different point of view. You see the journey as it happens. You drive through the signs. For the ferry or for the M1. And you see it as, it as it unfolds. And so what we're going to do this morning is look at the Google map version of the story of King David in Second Samuel. And then in the coming weeks we're going to drive the journey together. And hopefully both will help us to understand it. But before we do that, I want to address the question of... Why and how we read the Old Testament scriptures. I don't just want to jump into reading a story from well over a thousand years ago and assume that we understand why we are doing it. In fact, I wonder whether this is one of those questions that hovers at the back of our minds, even if we've been in church our whole lives, and yet we feel a little bit unspiritual asking. I know that I should do this, but I've never really understood why. What is the point? I mean, it's a great story, isn't it? The kid, the kid gets a sling and he flings it around his head and then he shoots it at the, the giant. The giant falls down and if you get into the more gory kid's books, he gets a sword out and lops off his head and you think, wow, this is brilliant. I know I should read it, but I don't understand why I should read it. I mean, we get the Gospels. I, I, I get Jesus. I mean, I don't get him, get him. But I understand why you would read the stories of Jesus if you want to follow Jesus. I understand the letters that come afterwards because they're teaching me what I should do in response. You want to follow Jesus, so stop following other gods. You want to follow Jesus, so stop stealing. You know, it, it makes sense to me. Someone's thought about it and they've written down some instructions. But 
The stories of what ancient people did to each other, often told in gruesome detail, written thousands of years ago and thousands of years before Jesus, can seem long, boring, scary and disturbing, unfamiliar or just weird. I mean, there's a story of a guy called, I loved this story when I was a kid growing up. So I don't, if you're reading children's Bibles, uh, particularly with boys, don't hide from them the good stories. Uh, they're the ones they'll remember. Uh, I used to love this story of a, guy, a king called Ehud, who was a really bad guy, and there was a uh, uh, kind of uh, vigilante, a bit like John McClain, raised up from within Israel, uh, went to uh, kill this guy, and he stabbed him. He carries this is in judges, carries his dagger in his left hand side, so that no one, when they pat them down to go and see the king, he doesn't find the dagger because he's left handed, so they, they look in the wrong place, and he stabs him, and the dagger gets sucked into the guy's belly because he's so fat. When I was a little boy, I thought this was amazing. You know, Bible stories go. That was the kind of story I could get my hands around. And it just seems weird. I mean, even as I'm describing it to you now, I can see that you're looking at me thinking, what is he talking about? It's just a different world. It's a different world. I can't answer all of those questions in uh, ten minutes. But I can start to explain a little bit about why we read the Old Testament and what it and how we should read it. And I want to start with why. Why read the Old Testament? Why read the Jewish scriptures? Well, the first thing to say is that we read the Old Testament because it is inspired by God. Its value comes from the one who gave it. Let me illustrate that for you. Uh, Abigail, when she was uh, in the middle of worship a moment ago, she'd taken a break from dancing, which she normally does, to wrap some ribbons round a plastic ring. Came and gave it to me. I said, wow, Abby, that's brilliant. And I actually really enjoyed looking at it. If one of you had come and given me a ring wrapped in ribbons, I would have looked at you as if you were a bit odd and probably just carried on singing. I certainly wouldn't have given you a big hug and celebrated it. Why? I don't really want a ring wrapped in ribbons, but I do want a gift from my daughter. Its value comes from the person who gave it to me. The scriptures are given by God, and so they are valuable. This is, you might struggle with that idea, if you're someone who struggles with the idea that God is the one who who is behind the Bible, then let me just tell you, Jesus thought this was true. And so we think it's true. Uh, If you've got a Bible, I'm going to urge you to turn to Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. I'm going to read it as well. Going to be looking at some some, uh, passages. Matthew 22. So Matthew is the first of the stories about Jesus. Chapter 22 goes on page 990 to 991. If you're using one of the Bibles we've got here. And we're starting at verse 41. The verses are just someone split up the sentences so that you can find a sentence more easily. So it should be in the right-hand column if you're using one of our Bibles. It says, While the Pharisees, who were other teachers in Jesus' time, gathered together, so this is in the, essentially in the staff room, if you like, with, uh, amongst Jewish teachers in the time of Jesus, they said, Jesus asked them, Who do you th- What do you think about the Messiah? That's God's chosen king. Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. 
He said to them, how is it then that David, this same David we're going to be looking at, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hands until I put your enemies under your feet. And he quotes a poem from the Old Testament. He says it's written by David. David said this, but David spoke by God's spirit. It was God's breath in him. They were his words, they were written in his language, they were formed by his mind, but he was inspired to write them by God. So Paul puts it like this, he says, all scripture is God-breathed. Now I thought, how can I illustrate this for you? And I thought, I have some fun. So we know what this is? Seen one of these before? South Africans, I'm looking at you. It's a vuvuzela. It's a vuvuzela, okay? I'll turn my mic off. You go to uh, a sporting event in South Africa, these things are there all the time. I mean, it's like you're being attacked by a hail of hornets. Okay, yeah. Okay, that's what Vuvuzela sounds. Now, can you see that the sound is being formed by the instrument? It's the instrument sound. Yeah, yeah. I can't hear. Too many years playing Vuvuzelas. <laughs> It's the instrument sound, right? If I just blow my lips, I go... That's not the sound you heard. The sound you heard is formed by the instrument, right? This is my trombone. Okay? I have a frustrated former life as a jazz musician. Which is great, actually. I, um, I got to go around Europe and play. It was great fun. Uh, this is a very cool uh, trombone that's made for children uh, because you can drop it and it doesn't break. Okay? It only costs about £100. And I thought it was fun because it was red and black, so I bought one for myself. And I'm going to make the same shape with my lips. Okay? But you're going to hear that because the instrument is different, it sounds different. So on the Vuvuzela, you have one note and it sounded at a particular pitch. It's roughly a C, but not quite. Because uh, it's not very well tuned. And I'm going to show you that if you play the same way through a trombone, you will make a different sound with the same person blowing. Okay? Okay? Right? So that's an F major scale on a trombone. No, 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 no. Now that just made me feel bad about how far I've fallen. Okay. Uh, I played at the North Sea Jazz Festival. I don't, I don't need to be clapped for an F major scale. I, I'm quite secure, but I'm also quite sad. The, who or what was making the sound? Now the instrument was making the sound, wasn't it? But it was my breath. It was my breath. Okay. Paul says... All scripture is God breathed. And God is the musician who plays. But the instruments he plays are different. So they make different sounds. Sometimes he plays an instrument like Isaiah or Jeremiah. And the sound is really sad. 
Because he's playing in a minor key. And you're lamenting. You're, you're saying how sorry you are and looking at the state of the world and thinking how bad it is. Sometimes he's playing an instrument like St. Paul. And you read it and you think, wow, this guy is just much cleverer than I am. And it's really challenging. Sometimes he plays an instrument like David, King David. And what comes out is beautiful poetry. All the time it's the same player blowing, but he's blowing things. All scripture is God breathed. Why is it that we read the Old Testament? Because it's God's great symphony. God has picked men and women and he blew through them and produced a sound for us. We read the Old Testament not just because it comes from God, but because it's written to teach us. Here's your second chance to look something up. So uh, if you can't look these things up, don't worry, I'm going to read them anyway. But if you have got a Bible, it's good to look them up for yourself. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. Romans is the first of St. Paul's letters in the Bible. Because it's the longest. Chapter 15 and verse 4. So if you're looking in one of the Bibles from this church, it's on page 1141, and it's in the right-hand side. St. Paul says this, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Why should you read the Old Testament? Because it was written with you in mind. And with me. You thought about that. Why is this story of David and Goliath there? It's there to teach me. When God was playing his great symphony, and he was picking the instruments he should use for it, he looked and he said, I know who's going to hear. It's going to be Phil. And it will teach him. It will teach him and encourage him and give him hope. The Old Testament is important for us because it was complete, even though it was completed thousands of years before we were born, it was written to teach us. Finally, the Old Testament is important because it is about Jesus. Now that might sound like a funny thing to say. But one of the things Christians believe is that actually the whole of the Bible is teaching about Jesus. It's a claim that Jesus made. Again, whenever I say something odd, you'll find that I go back and say, well, Jesus said the same thing. It's kind of, don't ask me, ask the boss. This is the last scripture we'll be looking up in this section. It's from uh, Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. While we do that, I'm just going to read another uh, passage. When he was... Challenged by the experts in the law, so they're back in the staff room and they're having a discussion amongst all the people who teach in Israel. And Jesus is a prominent teacher, and so the, he starts to challenge the others, saying, You study the scriptures, you do your subject, you read the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Jesus is saying, You read the Old Testament, it tells you about me. 
Then after he died and uh, come back to life, he went and talked with his friends and followers who were struggling to understand this. This is Luke 24 and verses 25 to 27. He says this. Oh, I've got to find it. So I'm on page 1061. If you are... Uh, 1062 for you, I'm told. It says... So this is Luke 24 and verses 25 to 27. He said to them, that's Jesus, How foolish you are! And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In all the scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament. We need the Old Testament because it's about Jesus. He's the centre of it. Now, on one level, these stories about uh, stories about people. There are stories about how badly people treat each other. About uh, daughters who are faithful to their mother-in-laws. There are stories about terrible kings. There are stories about nations going to war with nations. But the stories themselves are not really the point. The point is underneath the story. It's about God and how He's going to reconcile the world to Himself through Jesus. We read the Old Testament because it's about Jesus. Now with all of that said, how? How do we read it? You might be thinking, I'm fired up now, Phil. I'm fired up. I like the bit with the trombone. Didn't quite follow all the Bible readings. But now I'm fired up to know more. And I pick up my uh, Bible and I, and I open the Old Testament and I, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to read it. I mean, it's just weird. There are poems, the trees of the field are clapping their hands. Am I supposed to think that happens literally? Where are these trees with hands? What about all the battles and stuff? What about these guys in the middle who seem really miserable and really angry, and then occasionally a little bit hopeful, and then really miserable again? Well, first I want to say we should be careful. The word Bible means library. Different types of book in a library, and there are lots of different types. We need to be careful how we read them, so we don't misread them. So I'm going to bring you two books that are very dear to my heart. Okay, I wanted to I wanted to illustrate this. These are two books that are very dear to my heart. The first is from the second most important woman in my life, it's Nigella Lawson. This is Nigella Lawson's Christmas cookery book. If you haven't got this, and you don't mind putting on a cup of stone, I really recommend it. What have I got marked here? Oh yeah, Star Top Mince Pies, they're good. She's actually got five different options for Christmas dinner. The beef option she's got there. Oh, these, have you ever had cranberry and white chocolate cookies? I should try these, they're amazing. I can't eat them anymore because I'm lactose intolerant, so I just bring the book to torture myself. <laughs> Nigella's cookery book is a particular type of book. You want to read it. I'm guessing everybody knows how you read a cookery book. You pick up the book. You turn to any particular recipe you like. You read the page. You follow the instructions and then you close it. If I turn to the end, here's the final chapter. Cuban cure black bean soup. 
It's the perfect antidote to an evening soured by too much office party wine. There you go. It's useful. If you happen to have black bean soup to hand, and you feel like you want to make it when you have a hangover. If I have read the final page of Nigella Lawson's book, it does not spoil the beginning of the book for me. So if I say, I've read you Cuban black bean soup, now I turn to the beginning of the book, and the opening pages contain the recipe for blissful blueberry. I don't feel like I've spoiled my enjoyment of blissful blueberry because I've read about Cuban black bean soup. Right? It doesn't work like that. You read the book differently. Where has it gone? Ah, here. This is the other lady very dear to me. Okay, I have three ladies in my life. Sorry, Heather. Heather's number one, just about. I would put Nigella Lawson number three. This is the second lady who's very important to me. Uh, number two, she's Agatha Christie. Uh, I love Agatha Christie books, I'm unashamed. This is a murder mystery book. Now, I'm going to do the same, I'm going to read this book the same way we just read Nigella Lawson. So I'm going to begin at the end. You tell me if you feel like I'm going wrong or I'm going to spoil this book for you. She added, no, I'm not going to spoil it, because this is, a, this is a novel. What comes at the end has to come at the end. Right? You read it differently. You want to read an Agatha Christie book and get something out of it. You start at the beginning, you read all the way through, you get to the end, you go, goodness me, I didn't see that coming, I should have done. Okay, that's how you read Agatha Christie books. Okay, they're different. Because they're different types of book. Right? The Old Testament is the same. Right? There are different types of book. And you read them differently. There's poetry. There's history. There's ancient myths. So there's a kind of uh, mythical element to it, which is uh, legendary stories that are supposed to teach something. There's, there's parables. There is wisdom stuff. If you ever read Proverbs, you'll find it's a type of book where they put two contradictory statements together and let you work out what the answer is. Do not answer a fool according to his folly. Always answer a fool according to his folly. You think, what is that about? It's designed to make you think. Maybe there is no good way to answer a fool. There's all of these different types of books and we read them carefully. That's part of the reason why there are teachers. Now I'm trying to explain why I have a job. That's part of the reason why there are teachers. They help us to read. Because you don't read poetry the same way you read history. Right? You don't read, the trees of the field will clap their hands, the same way you read on, uh, in 1945, England and the Allies won the Second World War. Which is not the same thing. Second, we should be realistic. So we should read carefully, we should be realistic. And what do I mean by that? We have a terrible habit of making people heroes. Sometimes the people in the Old Testament are goodies, sometimes they are baddies. And that goes for everyone. Because they are like us. In some ways it's just a mirror holding it up to us. King David is a wonderful, awesome, terrible, awful man. He's not a hero to be emulated in everything he does. No one is except Jesus. Sometimes they do the right things, sometimes they do terrible things. They're just like us. What we're looking for when we read these stories is not someone to copy, 
So you read the story of King David, you think, King David, man after God's own heart, I'm going to copy everything he does, I'm off into the desert, I'm going to raise a band of uh, robbers to be my army, and then I will become king within 30 years. Not looking for a role model, what we're looking for is how God deals with him. What the story tells us about God. And what it means for us as we follow Jesus. So we read carefully, we read realistically, we also read, and here's where I get the big bucks. And this is what you can take away from today. If somebody asks you what you learned today, you can say, I learned what this word means. We read Christologically. Okay, there you go. That's a word which is invented by theologians to stop other people thinking they could do our jobs. Okay, every profession does it. You come up with a word that makes people on the outside feel small. The offside rule does that for football. Say, oh, he was offside. And as soon as someone turns around and says, oh, I don't know what offside means, I, uh, I say, oh, well, no point trying to explain it. You just don't understand the game. Okay, theologians do this more than most people. We come up with words that keep ordinary people on the outside. Okay, because otherwise you might think, well, I could do his job and then I might not have a job. Christologically means that we're always reading to see what we can understand about Jesus. It means Jesus is the centre. Sometimes this happens by analogy. You're told that Jesus is like something or someone else. Right, so Jesus is often called the son of David, for example, the king of God's kingdom. So there is a way in which Jesus is a bit like David. David shows us something about Jesus. Sometimes it's a bit less direct than that. It's like throwing a stone into a pond and you see the ripples and they spread out. So you're reading a story and you can see there's a ripple here and you think, well, there must have been a stone. And the ripple tells me something about the stone. It tells me where it was. In everything, we're always looking for Jesus. Now that's been a bit more of an academic lecture than I would normally give. What I want to leave you with, but as we, as we look at the story of, one, of 2 Samuel together now, is a desire to know Christ fully. These books were written thousands of years before Jesus was born, some of them, in order that you could know him. They are God's symphony. The God of all the universe picked up a trombone and said, I'm going to play something beautiful because it will help you to know who I am. And when we don't listen to it, it's as if we're saying you needn't have bothered. With all of that said, let's look at Second Samuel. So this is a, the story of Second Samuel. And it's going to be on the screen, so if you can't see the screen, um, then move to a place where you can. And we're going to play it. The book of 2 Samuel. Check out the video on 1 Samuel where we were introduced to the book's three main characters, Samuel, Saul, and David. And then also to the book's literary design, which first introduced Samuel and then traced the rise and fall of King Saul in contrast to the rise of King David. 2 Samuel tells the story of David as Israel's king, and in two movements. There's a season of success and a blessing, followed by a huge moral failure and then its sad consequences. And then the book ends with this well-crafted conclusion that reflects back on the good and the bad in David's life, generating hope 
for a future king to come from his line. So 2 Samuel picks up after Saul's death, and David surprises everyone by composing this long poem where he laments the death of the very man who tried to murder him. And so once again, the author, he's presenting David's humility and compassion. He's a man who grieves the death even of his own enemies. After this, David experiences a season of success and God's blessing. All of the Israelite tribes, they come to David and then they ask him to unify all the tribes as their king. And so the first thing David does as king is to go to the city of Jerusalem. He conquers it and he establishes it as Israel's capital city, which he renames as Zion. And from there, David goes on and he wins many battles and expands Israel's territory. Now, after making Jerusalem the political capital of Israel, he wants to make it their religious capital as well. And so he has the Ark of the Covenant moved into the city. And then in 2 Samuel 7, he tells God, now that Israel has a permanent home, he thinks that God's presence should also get a permanent house. So he asks if he can build a temple for the God of Israel. But God says to David, thank you for that thought, but actually I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty. Now, 2 Samuel 7, this is a key chapter for understanding the storyline of the whole Bible. Because God here makes a promise to David that from his royal line will come a future king who's going to build God's temple here on earth and set up an eternal kingdom. And it's this messianic promise to David that gets picked up and developed more in the book of Psalms than also in the books of the prophets. And it's this king that gets connected to God's promise to Abraham. The future messianic kingdom will be how God brings his blessing to all of the nations. And it's right here in the midst of all this divine blessing that things go horribly wrong. David makes a fatal mistake, not fatal for him, but for a man named Uriah, one of David's prized soldiers. So from his rooftop, David sees Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, bathing. David finds her, he sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, and then he tries to cover the whole thing up by having Uriah assassinated and then marrying her. It's just horrible. So when David's confronted by the prophet Nathan about all of this, he immediately owns up to what he's done. He's broken, he repents, he asks God to forgive him, and God does forgive him, but... God doesn't erase the consequences of David's decisions. And so as a result of this horrible choice, David's family, his kingdom, it all falls apart. And it makes this section a tragic story, much like Saul's downfall. So David's sons end up repeating his own mistakes, but in even more tragic ways. So Amnon sexually abuses his sister Tamar, and then their brother Absalom finds out about all of this and has Amnon assassinated. And then Absalom goes and he hatches the secret plan to oust his father David from power, and he launches this full-scale rebellion. And so for a second time, David is forced to flee from his own home and go hide in the wilderness, except this time he is not an innocent man. The rebellion ends when David's son is murdered, when it breaks David's heart. And so once again, he laments over the very man who tried to kill him. David's last days find him back on his throne, but as a broken man, he's wounded by the sad consequences of his sin. The book concludes with a well-crafted epilogue with stories that are out of chronological order, but they have this really cool symmetrical literary design. So the outer pair of stories come from earlier in David's reign, and they compare the failures of Saul and then of David and how each of them hurt other people through their bad decisions. 
The next inner pair of stories are about David and his band of mighty men who went about fighting the Philistines. And what's interesting is that both sections have a story of David's weakness in battle. So in contrast to the victorious David of chapters 1 through 9, here we see a vulnerable David who's dependent on others for help. The center of the epilogue has two poems that act like memoirs, and David reflects back on his life. And he remembers times when God graciously rescued him from danger. And he sees these as moments where God was faithful to his covenant promise to him and to his family. Both poems conclude by looking back onto the hope of God's promise of a future king who will build that eternal kingdom. Now these poems and then God's promise also connect back to Hannah's poem that opened the book. And so these key passages from the beginning, now the middle and the end of the book bring the book's themes all together. Despite Saul and David's evil, God remained at work moving forward his redemptive purposes. And God opposed David and Saul's arrogance, but he exalted David when he humbled himself. And so the future hope of this book reaches far beyond David himself. It looks to the future, to the messianic king who will one day bring God's kingdom and blessing to all of the nations. And that's what the book of Samuel is all about. Yeah. Should I Drew it myself. No, I didn't. I didn't. I'm aware that everything I've said, I'm aware that everything I said might have left some of you just scratching your heads. Uh, it might be that English isn't your first language and I lost you somewhere where I picked up the giant red uh, vivizela. It might be that you're wondering what all of this actually has to do with you. And so, as we come to take communion together, I want to draw out one application from the big story. And that's this. In all things, God is working for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In everything, God is working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In everything, God is working for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This story is a tragedy. David's life falls apart in the book we're going to read. His life is one of success and of failure, of disappointment and of deliverance. He's Israel's greatest king, and yet he endured family breakdown, disease, and the division of his kingdom. He wins great victories, and endures great defeats. In short, he's human. He's like us. David is me. Dare I say it, David is you. Then we're going to look at the individual lessons of his life as we go through it. What I want to say is that as we look at his life, the real story is going on in the background. Running alongside it. Alongside this story of human triumph and tragedy is another bigger story. To illustrate it, I'm just going to play a one minute video. This is an illustration. Watch it closely. 
Now, I'm not, I'm not sponsored by Intel Core Processing. <laughs> we don't have advert breaks in the middle of church. I picked a video from a website from a company who makes these videos because it shows all of the individual little videos of people's lives come together and make a picture. A big picture that you can't always see when you're looking at the individual video. And yet, it's going to be there. There's no sense that the woman bungee jumping thinks that she's making an Intel Core Pentium processor. Maybe I am sponsored by them. I should be anyway. Sign. The little videos are part of the big. And the big is made up from all of the little videos. Throughout everything David and Israel face, all of the videos, if you had a video of his life, it would be the videos of the moment he slew Goliath and a video of the moment when he destroyed his kingdom. And God is taking all of these little videos and using them and making a great picture out of them. Even in the midst of David's failure and triumph, God is working Jesus. God is working to bring about his promises. He's working to save his people. Because God works on a canvas that is so much bigger than we are, we often miss what he's painting in the midst of our triumph and disaster. So we can read David's story and think, what a tragedy. And we can live our lives and and endure pain and suffering and endure great moments of triumph and think, where is God in all of this? And yet the story of 2 Samuel is the story of a God who is using each one of those moments to make something beautiful. Something bigger than us. It gives us perspective, if I can put it that way. In the midst of everything that's going on in your life this year, God is working His purposes out. He does not fail, though His timing is not what we expect. When we stumble and fall and face disappointment, God is still working His purpose out in us and through us. You might, I don't know what's going on in your heart this morning. I don't know some of you at all. I don't know whether you've come here on the back of a great moment of triumph, a wonderful Christmas, or you've done something terrible and you're waiting for the police to arrest you. I have no idea. But wherever you are on that scale, God is working in your life. Your life can be part of his big picture. It is never too late. It is never purposeless. When we stumble and fall and face disappointment, God is still working his purposes out in us and through us. When you succeed spectacularly and it feels as if the world is at your feet, God is still working. When you fail miserably and it feels as if the world is crashing down on your head, God is still working. You are not beyond his grace. We live in an uncertain age. Actually, ironically, when I was preparing this sermon, I read a sermon I gave before 1 Samuel, and it was written just after the Brexit referendum. Because I don't often comment on politics. And I commented actually in the conclusion that we were living in a really uncertain age. A divisive age. I would say that now we live in a fearful age. We live in an age in which people are afraid of the future. You might be from a European country and not sure whether you're going to get to stay here for another three years. I have no idea. But God does. 
You might be enduring family breakdown and wondering what will happen to me if my partner leaves me. I have no idea, but God does. You might be enduring disappointment at work. Or you might have got promoted and be wondering what the future holds. I have no idea, but God does. Because he paints on a massive scale, he can be trusted. If I can put it this way, even David's failure did not derail God's plans. Your failure will not derail his plans. He'll just take it and weave it into the picture. And you can be at peace and trust him. Wherever your life leads, and whatever our country faces, because he is God and he holds you. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose.